Genesis chapter 40 today, the interpreter. We're looking at Joseph, continuing in Joseph's story in Genesis chapter 40. Um, we're going to start off with, uh, I want to just note on, on who Joseph is and what he's like. There's a famous quote um, that's attributed to Abraham Lincoln um, that says this. It says, whatever you are, uh, be a good one. And a lot of people question whether that really was Abraham Lincoln because, or if he's the first person that said it, because it seems like kind of an obvious, like is that really a famous quote of his? Right, it's just so obvious kind of a thing, um, obvious advice, like hey, if you're going to do something, do it well, be great at it, try hard, like be good at whatever you're doing. But that really is what Joseph's like, right? It really is a sentiment even that, uh, that goes back to Scripture. In Colossians uh, 3.23, it says, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men. I'm saying whatever you're doing, do it well. Try your best at it. Do it as though you're doing it for God. And that's really embodied by Joseph. Even at this point in the story, we can see that in his life from the time he's a kid. Now when he's a, so if we were to review his story so far, right? He's a kid growing up with his brothers, all mostly older brothers. He's got one younger brother comes along later on, but most of the time he's there with his older brothers. Um, he's his father's favorite son, and he lets him know it, and he lets everybody else know it. And so his brothers hate him. His brothers hate him, but he's a favorite son. Um, and they hate him so much that they sell him into slavery. And now, 11 years have passed. Uh, there's some math you have to do. You can go around and flip around the story, figure out. 11 years have passed from that time, and he was 17 when that happened. So he's now 28 years old. Um, the last 11 years, he's been um, either a, a slave or a prisoner, right? He started off being sold into Potiphar's house, uh, becomes the favorite slave, right? He works his way up. He becomes the favorite slave. Um, and then at some point, Potiphar's wife fancies him and, and tries to get him to sleep with her, but he's such a, a man of honor that he avoids that, but in doing so, ticks her off and she frames him as though it did happen and so he gets thrown into prison but then what happens he's in prison he rises up becomes the favorite prisoner right we've got favorite son favorite slave favorite prisoner right whatever he's dropping but he's at the top every time <laughs> right he's like i'm gonna get as high as i can and you think about i, I thought about this and this is it's pure speculation it's, it's it's somewhat speculative but you think about like how did he do that Right, how do you become the favorite prisoner? How do you become the favorite prisoner? I think it must be through volunteering. Right? It's, it has to be through volunteering. It has to be through, you know, he sees the, uh, he sees the, the, prison, the, the, the guard, you know, go into the, one of the cells with a broom, and he's like, I have to sweep out this cell. And he goes like, uh, hey, you want me to do that? Right? He's, got to vol he's got to find a way to like get in. What can he do? Because he's in, he's, in, he's in a prison cell. So he's got, to be willing, he's got to be going like, hey, can I help you out? What can I do for you? Guard, right? person who's keeping me in, in prison. And that's an attitude thing. And that's something that I think we ought to think about as well. Of he's not, you know, He didn't become the favorite prisoner by moping in the corner of his cell. Or by being angry and saying, I don't deserve to be here. I'm innocent and, you know, being mad about it. He's, he's like, okay, well, this is where I'm at. Let me see how can I be the best this. That's really his attitude the whole way along. Um, 
And so now he's, he's in this position. He's the top of the prison. He's really doing a lot of things for the, for the guards. Uh, they really trust him. They're putting him even in charge of other prisoners. And that's where we pick up the story today in Genesis chapter 40. We'll start out verses 1 through 8. The cupbearer and the baker. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. He continued for some time in custody. And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each with his, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked, Joseph's officer, he asked Pharaoh's officers, who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? And they said to him, we have had dreams, and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. Okay. So first off, who were these guys? The chief cupbearer, chief baker. The cupbearer tasted the wine, right? That's that classic thing of making sure that it's not poison. He's taking that risk. He's also just in charge of like the wine cellar. He's like kind of overseeing it all. He's in charge of that part of Pharaoh's uh, fair, right? He's in charge of the wine, in charge of the drink. The baker was likely responsible for uh, the menu, even likely responsible for the entire menu that that um, Pharaoh was served, right? The food that he got. His office can be rendered, like from uh, the most literal translation is royal table scribe, right? So he was in charge of kind of the whole menu. So these two guys, they literally held the life of Pharaoh in their hands, right? They were the ones that were basically overseeing what he ate. So if somebody was going to poison him, it was going to have to come through them. So what was their offense? Well, we don't know exactly what their offense was. We don't know what they did to get thrown into prison. But he's angry with them in some way. Maybe he just felt sick after a meal. Right? Maybe he had the tummy grumblies after a meal and was like, there's something wrong here. I'm going to get these guys in prison. Um, maybe uh, somebody accused them of a, of a devious plot. Maybe he said, oh, I've heard, overheard them. They were scheming. They're going to take you down. Like, they don't know. Right? We don't know what it was, but anything, at, at, at their level, anything that, w- that would cause Pharaoh to question their loyalty or their, their trustworthiness was enough to, to, to get them removed. And so Joseph, he's watching over them. He's attending them. And he says, like, they get thrown in prison. The guards are like, let's get Joseph on it. Joseph, he handles everything. Let's get him in charge of these guys. So he's watching over them. He's bringing them their meals. He's doing all the things that, that the guard would normally do. He's watching over them. He's in charge of them. Um, and, and this is like high profile, right? These are like, these are kind of like celebrity criminals, right? He's like, these are like the guys who guarded O.J. Simpson when he was in prison, kind of thing, right? It's like notable. It's the kind of thing you tell somebody about. And so they're, they're, he, he's like, these guys are high profile, and he's watching over them. He's in charge of them. That's a big deal. Um, and, and also think about the fact they're accustomed to royal treatment, right? They're officers of Pharaoh. They're high up. Like they, yeah, they were in charge of like the wine cellar and the baking and all that kind of stuff, but they're not doing it, 
Right? They're the guys who are in charge. They're bossing people around under that. So these guys are, are used to the, kind of the high life, and now they're in prison, and Joseph is having to tend them. That's a, that's a big thing. And so they have dreams, right? They have these dreams. And Egyptian dreams are taken very seriously. They believed in Egypt at this time that, that the dream, when you dreamed, you were in, put in contact with like another world, another realm. Um, and a pair of dreams was thought to be certainty of fulfillment, right? If, they, if there were two dreams that were paired together, it was so certain that they would come true. Um, and so under normal circumstances, especially guys that, at this level, they would have taken these dreams to professional dream interpreters who had dream books and they would be able to kind of break it down for them. So they're distraught because their normal course of action here where they have these disturbing dreams, they don't know what to do, right? Because they can't get it to the interpreters. They're trapped down here. And so they, Joseph responds to them. Now, I want to say this, that Joseph's response is not in line with our Western sensibilities, right? I think that most of us would want him to say, when they say, oh, we had a bad dream, that you would want him to say, like, oh, dreams don't mean anything. But don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. It's just your brain processing the information from the day. It's just totally random, and, like, dreams are not important, right? Everybody, that's what you'd want, right? You want that to be the case. We don't like this, we don't like this uncertainty of like, oh, he's receiving, dreams, receiving messages in dreams. kind of makes us uncomfortable. We want things that are clear cut. Um, but it's not the case. God even uses dreams. We've seen him use dreams already in Genesis. In Genesis chapter 20, he talks to Abimelech in a dream. Uh, in Genesis 28, Jacob has a dream where he sees the ladder to heaven and God speaks to him there. In Genesis 31, uh, Jacob dreams about, he has special dreams about goat breeding. If you don't remember that, go back. Uh, that's 31. Um, Genesis 37, Joseph, uh, he receives prophetic dreams, right? He receives, Joseph receives these prophetic dreams. Um, and it's an uncomfortable truth for us, right? It's uncomfortable for us to think about the fact that God is communicating with people in dreams. I mean, most of us don't like that idea. But there is some, com- here's some comfort for you, that, that God has given us guidelines for this. Later on in the Torah, in Deuteronomy, he gives some guidelines for dreamers. So, we look at this, Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God and with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Okay, so what is he saying there? He's saying, if you got somebody who's this dreamer of dreams, is a prophet in some way, and they, they say something's going to happen, and it does. It happens. But their advice is contrary to God's revealed will and word. Right? It's contrary to what God has already said. 
don't listen to them. Right? He's very specific in saying that regardless of whatever somebody says or does or can do or does a miracle or does something amazing, if they, what they're saying contradicts Scripture, don't listen to them. Think that's a test. It's not, it's not right. Just because someone can do something or says something or make something amazing happen, if they're asking you to violate what Scripture has already told you, don't listen to them. And that's true of everything that we take in, right? Everything that we take in, whether it's um, books you read, uh, advice from friends, sermons you listen to, especially me, check it against Scripture, right? Check it against Scripture. Check everything you hear. If it contradicts Scripture, it's not true, regardless of how good it sounds or how amazing the person is that that made it happen. That's a, a vital thing that we keep in mind. Because God says he does work in these ways. He shows here that he does use these kind of things. Okay, so let's look at what did Joseph actually say. His response, he comes and he sees these guys, and they're upset. He can tell they're upset. And he asks them, why are your faces downcast today? That's, think about even that line. The fact that he says, why are, your, why are you sad? They're in prison right? They're, they're in prison. They, were from, they went from the palace to prison. Like, of course they're going to be upset, right? But what does this show us about Joseph? It shows he cares about the welfare of his prisoners, right? He cares about these guys. He wants to, he wants to make their lives as good as possible. Again, he's, he's always about making the best of a bad situation, right? Again, he was, became the favorite slave. Now he's become the favorite prisoner and he cares about people he wants to see what can i do for these guys how can i help them out he's a prisoner and he's caring about these prisoners he's gained a lot of compassion because of what's happened to him right he's demonstrating this incredible compassion that he's gained through these experiences no doubt right he's been where they are he's been upset he's been you know there even though he got to the top of both of these things became the favorite slave, became the favorite prisoner. He started out as the new slave and the new prisoner. Right? When no one knew him and no one cared about him. He's been there. He's got this compassion. Then he says these two other things. First he says, do not interpretations belong to God. Do not interpretations belong to God. This shows us that his first instinct is to turn to God. His instinct with anything is what does God have to say or do about this? How does, how does God come into this picture? Because he recognizes that God is at work everywhere. So he sees, hey, okay, they've, got, they've had some dreams. They can't do the interpretations. God's got the interpretation. Right? He, that's his immediate instinct. And that, I think, creates a question in us. It creates a question in me of, is my God instinct that good? Right? Do I in, immediately turn any situation, any problem, any question? Do I take it to God? Or do I bring God into it? in my life not if i say personally not all the time not as often as i'd like not as often as i should right and i think that's something that we can question is how can we build that instinct how can we increase that that instinct in ourselves it also indicates that he still believes in dreams and remember this is not the first set of dreams that we've encountered in this story remember he had these prophetic dreams back uh, a few chapters ago where he receives these dreams about the the sheaths and the stars bowing to his, right? He had these prophetic dreams about his own future. And, and at this point, because these were dreams that, that his brothers and his, and his parents would, would one day bow to him, 
he should have like no reason to believe that those will come true at this point. But if he's saying, hey, these things, dreams matter and, and what God has communicated to us matters and his interpretation matters, it says that he still believes in that even in this place, right? Even at this low point in his life, he still believes in the promises God has given him. It also, it also just subtly, um, it subtly and gently subverts Egyptian theology, right? He's very subtly, in a gentle way, subverting Egyptian theology, because, right, they had dream interpreters. They had a system of people and of gods and of all, of a religion that revolved around dreams and interpreting dreams, and he's saying, as a foreigner, doesn't my God control interpretations? Doesn't, don't, don't, don't interpretations belong to my God, my Hebrew God? He's subverting their expectations. He's bringing that in. And then he says, please tell them to me. That's like crazy confidence right there. Right? He's got crazy confidence that God is with him, right? that God is going to come through for him. He believes that this is true. He believes that God is working in him and through him. Because if he's not and he's wrong, there can be major consequences. Right? If, this isn't, if, if what he says is wrong and doesn't come true, there are big-time consequences because these guys, while they're in prison right now, Pharaoh could get over it. Right? Pharaoh could get over it and, and, and reinstate them, and now they go, well, we had this weird guy down in the prison. He told us all these things that weren't true, and he's proclaiming this foreign god. Like, you got to just take him out. Right? There's a lot of things they could do if he's wrong. He's taking a big risk by even asking the question. So we can see in this how God is using this time to prepare Joseph for leadership. Right? He's preparing Joseph for leadership. He's become compassionate and sensitive to those that he's in charge of. Um, his reflex is to turn to God for wisdom and direction. And we can see that he, he still firmly believes in the dreams that God has given him. God's preparing him even in this place, in this prison. All right, next section. Lift up your head. Verses 9 through 19. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream, there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and presented and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, this is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you. Please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head, and in the uppermost basket were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh. And the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, This is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. Okay. That's just, that was mean. It's, 
that last bit, that's, that's me. It's a trick. Not very nice. So the cupbearer's dream, right? Joseph gives the cupbearer hope that in three days he'll be restored to his position of honor. Um, God, and, and we see that God revealed this to Joseph, right? Joseph already said, interpretations belong to God. He's taking this information from God. As he's hearing this, he's praying, he's communicating with God. God's revealing this to him. And so he asks for a favor. He's like, hey, yeah, you're going to be restored. Like, help, help me out. Help a brother out, right? Like, I help, I'm helping you here. Make you feel good about your, your dream and what's going to happen to you. Like, help me now. I, I'm not here rightly. You know, I shouldn't be here. I've I had all these bad things happen to me. Like, help me. He's using this opportunity. And now the baker's dream, right? We can assume, right? He even says, like, the baker, after hearing the favorable interpretation, he, like, said, oh, I have a dream too. It looked like, it seems like, he wasn't even going to tell. He wasn't even going to, he wasn't trusting this, this foreign guy. And so he, he wasn't going to tell. Um, he probably, but then he heard the good news about the cupbearer and he's like, oh great. Like maybe my dream is very similar. Maybe I will, um, maybe I'll hear the same kind of thing. And so in his dream, he's got this basket that contained all sorts of uh, baked foods. And that's, very likely because the Egyptians had, uh, they, in their dictionary, they have 38 different words for cake. 38 different kinds of cake, 57 different kinds of bread. Lucy, could you not? It's my daughter. <clears throat> and so, so then he's giving this interpretation to the, the baker and and he has got a much darker interpretation for the baker, right? He, and, but he presents it in this kind of twisted way, where he's like, hey, the, the, the Pharaoh will also lift up your head from your body. That's not what he's looking for, right? That's not, what he's, that's not the interpretation that he wanted. Uh, but it kind of it reminds, me of, um, it reminds me of Paul's words to the Philippians, uh, verses not, chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, he says, therefore God has highly exalted him, talking of, of Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Where he tells us every knee will bow. But the trick of that is it's not, it's every knee will bow whether willingly or not. You'll either bow saying, yes, I, I believe and I love you and I, and I accept the forgiveness that you've given me and, and I want to follow you and I want to put you in charge of my life. Right? That's what we do is we bow the knee and accept the gospel, accept the good news that Jesus died for us and wants us to live for him. Or in the end, when he comes back, he will make you bow. But every knee is going to bow one way or the other in the same way that here we have this cup, these, these two men who's, Heads are going to be lifted up just in very different ways. All right, last section here. Pharaoh's birthday bash, verses 20 through 23. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. 
but he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. So Joseph's right, right? Joseph was right. His interpretations were correct. God had revealed to him the truth about these dreams. Um, and we don't know, like, how did Pharaoh come to this decision? Right? It was common practice at that time to, on, on Pharaoh's birthday to pardon prisoners and that kind of thing. But how he came to this decision, we don't really know. Maybe he had an investigation, right? Maybe, maybe he put an investigation together and, and he came up with some definitive results. Uh, maybe it was revealed to him in a dream. We're going to see next time that, um, that he put stock in dreams. Uh, but, but regardless, we see that his, his interpretation came true. The cupbearer is restored. The baker is executed. And, and Joseph must have been excited right, when he heard the news, which probably you know, certainly would have swept throughout the, the palace and, and, and even down to the prisons of what had happened. And he was probably excited, like, hey, I, I, uh, I, maybe I'll get out now. Maybe the cupbearer will, will hold up his end of the, of the bargain. And it also would have validated his own dreams, right? He remember he had those dreams that he's still working with and, and believing in, even though they don't seem likely at this point. Uh, but he's probably encouraged until he finds out that he's forgotten, right? He's probably like, well, he's not going to tell me the first, he's not going to tell him the first day. Like it's his birthday. He's got a party. Like that's fine. Oh, you know what? The party's probably going to last like a week or something. It's a big, you know, it's the Pharaoh's birthday. It's not just a one day kind of thing. They have a big feast. And so he, I'm sure he'll get to it after the party's over. And like, then he'll, he'll tell me about it. And he's probably saving, you know, a good uh, vintage to give to him and tell him, tell him about his favorite uh, prisoner down here. He's, he's thinking, but as the weeks go on, you know, his, his hopes are getting lower and lower. I, I think maybe he forgot about me. Right? And, and ultimately he realizes that is the case. And he's going to be forgotten for two years. He's going to continue languishing in prison, serving as best he can for two whole years. He's not going to get out. God's still preparing him for his greatest role yet. And this is true like throughout Scripture that God's people, even when he has a big purpose for them, often have to wait for what God has, 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 wants to do with them. They have to wait. Even though they, they think they're ready, they, they're ready to go. Like They're excited. They want it to happen. But God makes them wait. And that same thing happens to us. Or we see it with uh, Abraham and Sarah. Abraham and Sarah are uh, you know, promised a uh, child, but they have to wait decades for Isaac. Or they have to wait decades. King David, um, he's anointed as king when he's a kid. He's a kid, and, 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 and they come in and anoint him as king, and yet for that actually to be fulfilled and come out, he's, he's well into his adulthood when that happens. Right? He still has to wait for God to actually exalt him to that position. Oftentimes, the things that God wants to do is we're, we're, we get put in this waiting period, but there's purpose in it. This is an illustration of um, a famous, one of the most famous missionaries of all time, Hudson Taylor. If you're familiar with Hudson Taylor, he's the uh, founder of the China Inland Mission, um, and, and he's famous for, for founding that and for serving and living in China for 51 years. He lived there for a long time. He, he brought over 800 missionaries to China with him, right? The, they, they come and serve there. Those missionaries with him started over 125 schools and are responsible for 18,000 conversions or more. 
But that was a big deal, especially back then at that time. That was a big thing. There was not a lot of inroads. This is the 1800s. There were not, this was a closed society. The fact that he was successful and made this happen was a big deal. But most people don't know that in the beginning of his life, he first arrived in China in 1854 when he was 21 years old. He arrives in, tw- in China, 21 years old. Um, and during, that t- during his first day, he, he preached mostly unsuccessfully. He says himself it was mostly unsuccessful. Um, at one point, he's robbed of everything that he owned. Um, he got married. He adopted a child from there. Um, had two natural-born children, one of whom died. And then he has to leave and go back to England after only six years. He spent six years there. Which is not a long time, especially when you're first trying to get integrated into a culture, get to know people. Like He almost did nothing there in, the, in six years. And he has to come back to England for health reasons. And so he comes back and has to stay for five years, as long, almost as long as he was there. He has to come back and stay for five years. And it's not where he wants to be. It's not what he wants to do. He's not excited about it. He's just waiting around, mostly. He's doing some preaching, traveling around. He's doing some things, but not what he feels like God has called him to do, not what he wants to do. He's waiting there for five years. And he writes this about those five years. Later on, he wrote about it and said, Yet without those hidden years, with all their growth and testing, how could the vision and enthusiasm of youth have been matured for the leadership that was to be? He sees that God used that time to mature him, to make him into the leader that God needed him to be. He recognizes that as valuable and as part of God's plan. Let's wrap up with this. How should we then live as a result of this passage today? What can we take away? How might we be changed? What can we take from it? Number one, and these are just possibilities. You might have something already that's, that's with you, but uh, we bring these out because this is not something that's just meant to be here on Sunday and you walk out and leave it and like, oh, that was interesting. It's meant to be take something with it and be changed. God wants to use his word to change you into become, becoming more like his son Jesus. And so this is, there's some possibilities. You might take this away and think about it during the week and go, okay, yeah, how, how might God work in me on this area? Number one, develop your God reflex, right? Increasingly center your life on him. Meaning that as situations come up, problems come up, like how, how's your reflex of turning to God, bringing God into it? going to prayer, all those kind of things. How does that, how quickly does that happen for you in everyday life? And maybe identify areas of your life where you're better at it and not as good at it. Number two, uh, be confident in your faith and encouraged by the moments where God has revealed himself to you. Right? I'm sure that even, even though it didn't result in what he wanted, when Joseph was right, when God worked through him to interpret this passage, it must have been encouraging to him. He must have carried that with him, going like, yeah, no, God can use me. He does use me. He wants to use me. Goes back to it. It's important that we have those markers in our lives of saying like, here are the times and places where God has worked in me and, and worked in my life. And, and that we can hold on to those and go back to those when we need encouragement. And lastly, uh, trust that God has a plan for your life and he has a purpose for the season of life you're in right now. Even if you can't see it, even if it seems worthless, that he's got a purpose for every season in your life.
even if it's preparing you for the next one. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for <coughs> this time that we can spend together in your word. We thank you for your word that reveals this truth to us, the story of, da- of Joseph and, and what we can take away from it, how we can see how you worked in his life, how you uh, revealed yourself to him, how he relied on you through all of these difficulties, God, of uh, what will be 13 years as a slave and prisoner. And we can look back on our lives and see places and times when we needed you, when we were not where we wanted to be, where things were not going the way we wanted them to go. And I pray that we would be able to look back and see how you can use those, those times in our lives draw, to draw us closer to you, to prepare us for the next season, prepare us for the next thing you have for us, God. Pray that we would continually rely on you, continue strong in the faith, that we would persevere and endure through those things, keeping our eyes on you. In your name we pray, amen.